I'm connected to a network with my husband's computer at home, which I obviously had to disconnect to bring here, to bring my computer here. And as I opened my file to start working on my talk, the network icon told me that I was connected to Dhamma and my signal strength was very low. I have no idea what that means. But as I read that, I think it's because I opened the file that said Dhamma. But I I thought it was wonderful because as I read that, I thought, I wonder if that's how the yogis are feeling. (laughs) After four days of sitting and walking and anticipating the end of the retreat tomorrow, A lot of you said, oh, if only I had two more days. I'm just getting started. Right? So you may be connected to Dhamma, but you feel as if you're just beginning to tune into the signal, and it's just beginning to get strong, and now it's ending. Don't worry. As we continue to practice, even outside of an intensive retreat, the signal always continues to strengthen. The Buddha said that drop by drop, a bucket is filled. And so every moment of mindfulness is a moment in which you have inclined the mind towards mindfulness. And he also said that wherever you incline the mind, that's where it will go. So this moment of mindfulness conditions the next moment of mindfulness, and so on, and so on. So your signal strength will keep getting stronger and stronger. And as our paramis keep getting stronger and stronger, so does our connection to Dhamma. So we've been talking about uh, the beauty of transformation through the vehicle of the paramis, And what we've hopefully learned in these last four days of very hard work that you've done, very dedicated work, is that we can nurture, cultivate, and bring forth certain qualities in our meditation practice. And those qualities that we bring forth in the meditation practice translates into our daily life. So it's not that we have to acquire them. Because if we didn't already have them, we couldn't uncover them, and we couldn't have them in our minds and hearts. So it's not that we're asking you to become something that you're not already. It's just making the signal stronger. And before we talk about the last two paramis, Uh, metta and upeka, loving-kindness and equanimity, I just wanted to pause and talk a little bit about how these teachings should be held. In the interviews that we've had, many of you have talked about um, 
self-judgment, self-criticism, just not good enough. You know, I sit down, my breath, I see my breath, I experience my breath, and then my mind is off and I'm sleepy and I'm having some doubts and I'm restless and I just don't know what I'm going to do. I, you know, I should, I should, I should, I should be different. I should be getting more. I should be doing more. And so I can't help but think that perhaps just in these teachings of the perfections of a Buddha that we've been talking about, that you might be subtly, maybe not even obviously, but just subtly using them as a measuring stick by which, um, of course, we will fall short if we have the highest of standards about how we ought to be. And this is precisely the opposite of what is intended by our reflections. What the Buddha taught is that what we all share is a misunderstanding. A kind of misunderstanding, that, but that misunderstanding can be transformed and seen through. It's as if we're in darkness and we discover a light switch. And as soon as we turn that switch on, there's light. And it's not a matter of blame or fault that we're in this dark room. It's innocent. And it's just fortunate that somebody shows us the light switch. So life gets brightened up considerably. And we can study and see each other differently and discover the colors on the walls and enjoy all of the beings and the furniture in the room when the light is turned on. And in the same way, if we see our so-called limitations, our so-called imperfections, with clarity, with precision, with gentleness, with kindness, with compassion, and having seen them fully, we can let go and open further. And when we do that, we begin to find that our world is more vast and more refreshing and more fascinating than we had realized before. In other words, the key to feeling less shut off and shut down and more whole is to be able to see clearly who we are right now in this moment, right now on this seat, in this room, at this moment, seeing who we are. The innocent mistake or misunderstanding that gets us uh, caught in our own style of ignorance and unkindness and shutdownness is that we've not been encouraged before to see clearly to see what is, and to see it with gentleness, not with self-criticism or with self-judgment. So instead, there's this basic misunderstanding that we should be uh, 
better than we are, that we should try to improve ourselves, and that we should try to get away from painful or difficult experiences because when they arise, it's because either something is wrong out there or we've been doing something wrong in here. And then we think, well, if we could just learn how to get away from that pain, then we could be happy. And that's the innocent and naive misunderstanding that we all share and that keeps us suffering. Aldous Huxley said that the spiritual journey does not consist of arriving at a new destination where a person gains what he did not have or becomes what he is not. It consists in the dissipation of one's own ignorance concerning oneself and life and the gradual growth of that understanding. And that's what begins the spiritual awakening. So these, we call this collection of teachings the beauty of transformation. We didn't call it a self-improvement plan because it's not a situation in which we're trying to be better than we are now. Because in fact, we don't have to identify with, destroy, or struggle with rage, or fear, or depression, or unhappiness, or any of those human emotions that we all share. The thought that we should change into someone else is fundamentally an aggression toward ourselves. And the other problem is that our hang-ups or our difficulties unfortunately or unfortunately, contain our wealth. There's a Tibetan story of, about peacocks. That essentially, uh, um, Kamala told me about as I was telling her a little bit about what I was going to talk about tonight. And so she very kindly uh, found this for me. In a general sense, peacocks are a symbol of openness and acceptance. In Christianity, the peacock is a symbol of immortality. In Mesopotamia, appeared a symbolic representation of a tree flanked by two peacocks, which is said to, symbol, to symbolize the dualistic mind and the absolute unity. In Hinduism, the patterns of the peacock's feathers uh, resembling eyes, symbolize, and stars. I'm not sure what that means. In Buddhism, they symbolize wisdom. And here's the thing. Peacocks are said to have the ability of eating poisonous plants without being affected by them. Because of that, they are synonymous with the great bodhisattvas. A bodhisattva is able to take delusions as the path toward liberation and transform the poisonous mind of ignorance, desire, and hatred into the thought of enlightenment or bodhicitta, which opens colorfully like the peacock's tail.
So you see our difficulties, our poisons, are not necessarily to be struggled with, but in a way can actually be eaten. There's, a, there's also a, a, um, a practice in Tibetan, called, in Tibetan Buddhism called chad, in which instead of struggling with your demons, you actually visualize them and you feed them. And when you feed them, they actually get so satisfied that they just fall over. <laughs> so we're transforming our sufferings. Again, the Tibetans teach that to understand spiritual life, you must take the practice of making your sufferings into the path of welcoming your sufferings as the place of your practice. So this human life is not without sorrow. It's not without pain. Certainly, as a group of people of color, we have our particular forms of suffering. We suffer from racism in our culture, and we, we know that. But the suffering is the suffering of all of us. Because just as racism and injustice and aggression and oppression harms those who are oppressed and who are the subjects of prejudice or rage or anger. So is the aggressor harmed. So we begin to get a glimpse of why metta and upeka loving-kindness and equanimity are perfections of a Buddha. Paramis. The time for practice and development of these perfections, all of these ten perfections that uh, Kamala and Larry and Bhante have talked about in these last three days, is calculated in almost unimaginable terms. It's calculated in terms of the arising and passing of universes. The Buddha, it is said, practiced for four immensities and a hundred thousand mahakalpas. What's a mahakalpa, you say? A mahakalpa is the amount of time it takes for a bird 
with a silk scarf in its mouth, to fly back and forth, and every hundred years waft the silk scarf across a mountain that is higher than Mount Everest. The amount of time it would take the bird doing that to wear down the mountain completely. That's one Mahakalpa. And it's said that the Buddha took four immensities and a hundred thousand Mahakalpas to attain these perfections. So I think we can have a little patience with ourselves. <laughs> when we look and we see that perhaps we haven't gotten them quite perfect. And that's why we call it practice, because it's not perfect yet. And it's useful to bring this kind of perspective into our lives, because when we try to bring attention to and spend all these hours sitting and walking and sitting and walking, and a million breaths in and out and in and out. If we think about it, as Larry said last night, you know, are we there yet? Are we enlightened yet? When are we going to be enlightened? When's this going to stop and I can just be perfect and transcend it, right? So this is just a way of reminding us that um, in, this, in our practice, we don't need to have a timetable. We can uh, set down any idea of linear time in which we are required to attain the practice of per- the, the perfection of patience or determination or any of the paramis. That there's a timeless quality about our work in which we can rest, knowing that in every single moment, in every single moment is contained eternity. Because we know, and we've been practicing now for a few days, so we're beginning to just get a glimpse of how every moment is just all there is. That as soon as we even say this moment, it's past. And the next moment comes, and now it's the present moment, and then it's past, and then it becomes the future. And that's what's required for this great work, to really just understand that there is no time. There is just now. So metta and upeka, these are the last two paramis. And they're not only taught as paramis, but they are uh, two of what are called the four Brahma-viharas, which are um, loving kindness, compassion, unselfish or sympathetic joy, and equanimity, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. And they are universal virtues which are not exclusive to Buddhism, and they're available to us. Here's a story for you. A Brahmin once came to the Buddha and asked him how he could enter the abode of Brahma or the divine 
The Buddha told him that this was possible by practicing boundless kindness toward all beings, boundless compassion with all beings, boundless joy in the salvation and basic goodness of all beings, and boundless equanimity toward all beings, whether friend or foe. Practicing thus, the Buddha explained, makes it possible for one to transform the obstacles of meanness, gloating over the misfortune of others, unhappiness, and preferential mind. This was the way, he explained, that we enter into the abode of the divine. And that is what Brahma-vihara means, divine abode. It is also translated sometimes as a boundless state or a boundless home. Now in the teaching of the paramis, only two of these are included, metta and upeka, loving kindness and equanimity. And I think it's because compassion and joy are actually just natural emanations of a heart of loving kindness. When metta meets uh, suffering, compassion is its natural response. And when it meets joy, mudita, or the joy for the joy of another, the happiness that someone else is happy, that someone else is successful, is its response. And this love and compassion are at the heart of Buddhist practice. It's not only love and compassion for others, but just as important is the love and compassion for ourselves. Because if we don't have love and compassion for ourselves, it is not possible to have it, that compassion and openness toward others. And love and compassion, love and wisdom in Buddhism are completely linked. They are two sides of the same coin. Because love by itself can be sort of mushy and misguided, and wisdom by itself can become dry. So love and wisdom together express a more integrated um, life. When I attended my father's funeral four years ago, and saw him lying there, his body lying there, without life, I suddenly, in that instant, understood impermanence as I had never understood it before. In one instant, in that one instant, I realized that I was mortal. I realized that my mother and my sisters and my friends were mortal, that everyone would die. And I'd been studying Buddhism for 30 years. And I had seen 
um, in meditation practice evidence of impermanence. But somehow that moment of seeing my father no longer there had a tremendous impact. And this made life feel much more precious. It made it feel that it was urgent, that practice is urgent. I had much more love for my mother and my sisters as I knew they too could die at any moment and that this next breath could be the last. And I told this story a few years ago in one of the POC retreats at Garrison Institute about an experience I had at a three-month retreat of remembering a painful memory of uh, abandonment when I was five years old. Even though it was temporary, it seemed to that five-year-old that it was not and that it was forever and it left a wound. But from that memory also arose a very, very deep understanding of the universality of human suffering. I understood my own abandonment to be impersonal. I understood abandonment as a universal experience. And understanding suffering in this way arouses compassion. It awakens it. We know and we recognize that suffering is painful and we want to relieve it. We can feel the suffering of others as our own because we are part of the same life and we share the same breath, the same air as Kamala was talking about with the aloha spirit the other day. Shantideva an 8th century monk in India, said that life was like a single body organism. When the foot is hurting, the hand goes out immediately to alleviate the pain, not because the pain is felt in the hand, but because there is a shared sense of suffering. As our own heart opens and is healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. And we begin to know from that, that when we're suffering, it's not because we're doing wrong, or because, not because we're doing life wrong, or because something has gone wrong, but because this is the truth. There is suffering. And the Buddha said, this is the first noble truth. There is suffering. And I know that the the teachings are sometimes interpreted to mean life is suffering, but that's not what the Buddha said, because he said there were four truths. The second is that there is a cause of suffering, that there is an unappeasable desire of the mind, an unappeasable desire of the mind to have things its own way. And the third noble truth is that that suffering can end. And the fourth is that there is a path to that end. So when the Tibetans say, turn your sufferings into the path, 
it means we can actually use them for understanding. So we shouldn't flinch at our difficulties and pain, and that also means we can look directly at it. In the Visuddhimagga, which is an ancient text translated um, as the path, Visuddhimagga meaning the path of purification, there is an entire chapter on the cultivation of the four Brahma-viharas. And one of the first instructions in that, I think actually it is the first instruction in that tome, it's about that thick, is to review the danger in hate and the advantage in patience. Because it says, hate has to be abandoned and patience attained. And one cannot abandon unseen dangers or attain unknown advantages. So someone asked yesterday about the two practices between uh, vipassana and metta. Our mindful practice begins to show us what is happening within us now. And then once we see that, once we can review the danger in hate, and we can see the advantage in patience, then we understand the power and the strength of metta. One yogi was telling me in an interview about his metta that as soon as he starts to send it to a difficult person, the exact opposite reaction of hatred shows up. And he was a little concerned about that. And I hope he wasn't too surprised when I said, that's excellent. Because it meant that if you first see what is arising within you, then once it's conscious, once you're aware, then you can work with it. If you're not aware, then how can you know its disadvantages? And what the Buddha said about hatred or anger is that it's like a hot coal that you pick up to throw at another person and they duck and your hand is burned. So we begin to see if we really look at the quality of hatred in our hearts, we begin to see that the person who is the object of our hatred is not harmed by it. Who is harmed by it? But we ourselves, because once we close our hearts to one person, our heart is closed. So let's just talk a little bit about metta. The qualities of metta. First, I want to read you a poem. This is from Maya Angelou, who wrote a brave and startling truth for the 50th anniversary of the United Nations. And it's a very long poem. It's a beautiful poem. That, um, but I'm just going to read you the first stanza. She said, we, unaccustomed to courage, exiles from delight, live coiled in shells of loneliness until love leaves its high holy temple and comes into our sight to liberate us into life. Love arrives, and in its train come ecstasies 
old memories of pleasure, ancient histories of pain. Yet if we are bold, love strikes away the chains of fear from our souls. We are weaned from our timidity in the flush of love's light. We dare be brave, and suddenly we see that love costs all we are and will ever be. Yet it is only love which sets us free, a brave and startling truth. So that's her take on metta. In the classical teachings, the qualities of metta are love for oneself, being allowing and non-judging. It produces spaciousness and lightness in the mind. Loving kindness towards others is not relating with grasping and attachment, which, by the way, is the near enemy of metta, of loving kindness. Remember the second noble truth? The cause of suffering is the unappeasable desire of the mind to have things its own way. And we, we do that even not only with wanting circumstances to be a certain way, but also wanting people to be a certain way. And the people that we claim we love, we have this attachment to, this idea about how they should be, not only, and the most important thing about how they should be is how they should be with us, right? What they should give us. So this cause of suffering, this attachment, is one of the, um, is, is a near enemy of metta. It is unconditional love that needs nothing in return. And it's love born of wisdom. It's unconditional, universal, loving kindness. It does not single out a class of beings, but shines like the sun on all. 16th century Japanese poet Issa said, in the shade of the cherry tree, there are no strangers. That is what metta is like. It's the shade of a great tree. It's a feeling of friendliness and warmth for all beings everywhere. It's a truly boundless feeling. It's not looking to others for completion, not relating out of need, and radiates the infinite quality of love. But sometimes that sounds really great, right? So why do we sit in, in practice trying to just say four simple little phrases, no big deal, for somebody who's a little annoying to us, right? And it's so hard, right? It seems like a high, someone described it in an interview today as like a high mountain to climb that I think I just can't get there. And we know, as I said, that there is a lot of injustice in the world. 
And I think someone over here also asked how it's possible to send metta to someone who we think has done something unforgivable. It is possible. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he is placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused, one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, his good deeds, his strengths and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken. A joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. How's that for punishment? So it's possible, it's possible to forgive. It's possible to have well-wishing for even those who have harmed us. If you never were allowed to return to your homeland, roots, birthplace, family, friends, and heart dwelling, how bitter, angry, resentful, unforgiving, vengeful, would you react to the usurpers of your homeland? There was ecocide, genocide, forced labor, repopulation aimed at annihilation of your uh, race. That's what's happened to the Dalai Lama. That's what's happened to the people of Tibet. And yet he has constantly and consistently advocated nonviolence. And he even prays for the people of China. And I was very moved a few years ago to be in, the present, in his presence with uh, Master Shen Yang, who, was, um, who is a, a, a Taiwanese, um, master in the uh, Chan tradition. And there was a dialogue between them. And it was wonderful because the dialogue was first translated into Chinese and then translated into English for us. And there was a huge Chinese population in the hall. And the love and the kindness with which he met 
them was incredibly moving. And Master Shen Yang kept calling him little brother, which was really, really lovely. So he still expresses goodwill toward the oppressive government of China and prays for his Chinese brothers and sisters who also suffer imprisonment, torture, unspeakable torments, and are separate from the government officials. And when you're in his presence, you experience his tremendous warmth and kindness toward everyone. And everyone in the neighborhood is infected by it. I was privileged to be at a, um, an initiation that he did at Madison Square Garden about 10 years ago. And it was really wonderful to witness walking into the, um, into the hall and there was just a, a huge contingent of police. And as we were walking into the hall, they were very uptight and very you know, uh, militaristic and very official. And as we walked out, they had sort of melted, right, into this sort of you know, little pool of nothing from just from standing there and listening to the Dalai Lama to be uh, in his radiation. And he, there are no exceptions with him. You never see him change how he feels when different people are with him. And you can see that. You feel a state of blessing when you're in his presence. And all of the people, not only the Dalai Lama, but Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Oscar Ramirez, people who have had their homelands uh, have oppression in their homeland or had their homeland stolen. The ones who are revered are the ones who preach love, metta. And this, and when they radiate love, they radiate it so that no one and nothing is outside its field. from Martin Luther King. I know that love is, on, is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. And I have seen too much hate. Hate is too great a burden to bear, to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it, because God is love. He who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. So don't underestimate the power of those four little phrases. Don't underestimate the power of the opening of your heart. Don't underestimate the power, not for what it does externally, but for what it does to your own heart. And the second quality, the last parami is equanimity.
Equanimity is sometimes misunderstood as passivity. Because it asks us to accept what is present in this very moment. It asks us to sit in the midst of all of the changing circumstances of life, and I know that in these last four days you have seen them over and over and over again. One sitting is beautiful, relaxed, clear, and you come back into the hall thinking, now I've got it. I guess I can leave that sentence right there. And equanimity asks us to actually, in a way, be loving, kind, compassionate, joyful in the midst of whatever is happening, to keep a balance of mind whatever is arising. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean, a hundred feet beyond the surf, as he cuddles in the swells. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves, because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. How about you? So equanimity is a spacious stillness of the mind and radiant calm in what we call the midst of the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. This firmness of mind, this composure, allows us to be present fully with all of those changing experiences that constitute our world and our lives. As I said before, it's not that something is wrong when pain arises or blame. This even-mindedness is based on our insight into the nature of things, seeing clearly things exactly as they are, karma, that all things are conditioned, that causes and conditions create results, that all things are impermanent, devoid of a permanent self, and are by and large unsatisfactory. And when we look carefully at our experience, perhaps as you have been looking carefully at yours, you begin to see that. 
there's an unceasing parade of unpredictable experience. Have you noticed that? And in our own lives, this flow and movement is continual. How many events conspired to bring you here to this retreat? Many, many, many different changing events and experiences have led to this moment here. And we can accept each moment as an unrepeatable miracle. At the time, those events may have seemed unfortunate. They may have played some part in bringing you here. Like the duck, you can sit in the midst of these changing experiences, understanding that we have no idea what the mystery is, what the answer to the mystery is, that it's large, that in each moment there is infinity, but it's ungraspable. And to see that life is not a series of chaotic events, but it's like a mosaic, it has a pattern. And each experience plays a part in the whole. And when we have a larger perspective, when we pull our lens back so that we see a larger picture, we can see the harmony in it. Even though in this moment things may be difficult, painful, hard, it may be difficult to embrace what is painful, difficult um, to take in difficult times as being part of that whole. But we really don't know, do we? And I know it's difficult to feel as connected to what is painful, much more difficult than to connect to what is pleasant and easy and fortunate. But our lives are what the Tao is called, filled with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And this perfection of equanimity calls us to be, as the Buddha said, a mountain, like a mountain that is unshaken by the wind. So the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes of this earth. And we can find a place of poise and rest, just like we're sitting in the waves of the Atlantic. How many times have you done something that somebody praised and another blamed? I've had the experience on this retreat of getting notes from two yogis that have two very different messages. <laughs> or, you know, in, interview, in an interview, a yogi said, I expected bliss. What am I doing here? I could be at home having a good time. <laughs> but it's the very nature of life. No one experiences only pleasure and no one experiences only pain or only gain and only loss. And when we open to this truth, we see that there is no need to push, to hold or to push away. And it's not passive. It doesn't mean that because we accept what is presented in this moment that 
there is no room for action or no room for appropriate response. What we are trained to do in our practice is to actually pause when we are in the midst of difficulty, to know it for what it is, as Bhante was instructing this morning to recognize, accept, investigate, and not identify with it. Because when we do that, we create space in the mind that helps us to see what our choices are. When we see what our choices are, we're no longer reactive. We're no longer reacting to what is presenting itself in the moment. But we're actually able to see clearly and to see what is appropriate. And when we are able to work in that way without the reactive mind, then we have much fewer regrets. So rather than trying to control the uncontrollable, rather than trying to, un- to control the external events of life, we find a sense of security in being able to meet what is happening exactly where it is, exactly how it is. And this allows for the mystery. It allows us to not judge, but rather to cultivate a balance of mind that can receive what is happening. And this acceptance is the source of our safety and our confidence. So I'll close with one of my favorite poems from Rumi, so the Sufi um, poet. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, for each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.